It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Amelia Earhart once said, the most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? Who successfully challenged Jesus? Our theme text, Matthew 15, verse 25. But she came up and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Okay, who successfully challenged Jesus? Joining us today also is Julie. Hi, I'm excited to talk about another woman in the Bible, because there's always something to learn from the women. There is. So coming up (laughs) in today's podcast, you already know what's coming up. She just told you. What do you do? When you have a desperate need and the one who can solve it is nearby, do you make a scene? What if the solution is Jesus himself? Find out how this unfolds in about 15 minutes. What do you do if your solution doesn't seem to want to cooperate with your desperate need? Do you demand? Do you threaten? Do you beg? We're going to see what this woman did with such a need in about 30 minutes. And finally, can we ever be victorious by challenging Jesus, or is challenging him a sure recipe for disaster? We're going to talk about the best approach to this in about 45 minutes, but first let's establish uh, what we are actually talking about. To challenge Jesus and succeed is not something you hear about every day, so let's clarify what we're saying. Jesus was a speaker of God's word and a doer of God's will. Inevitably, challenging this would be a futile effort. When we say challenge, we mean not following an expected pattern. There were a few instances in the ministry of Jesus where someone did not exactly follow Jesus' set patterns regarding healing, and they were blessed anyway. On this episode today, we will investigate another, like Julie said, another unnamed woman of the Bible. This Syrophoenician woman spoken of in Matthew 15 and Mark 7 was such a person. She was an unnamed Gentile woman and did not accept a seeming denial from Jesus when she asked for her daughter to be healed. Jesus complied with her insistence, and she was blessed. So what was her secret, and what can we learn? Another unnamed woman of the Bible. Let's begin by getting the context of our story. We want to review the event that occurred before Jesus dealt with this Syrophoenician woman to establish a timeline. Now, this event didn't happen immediately before, but it's the recorded event before the, the story we're talking about today uh, in both Matthew and Mark. So let's start with this previous event. We're going to go to a challenge. We're talking about challenging Jesus. Well, here's a legitimate challenge. It's Matthew 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14, but Jonathan, let's do verses 1 to 2 to start. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So they challenged him, and they're always challenging him. They're trying to upset the apple cart. They're trying to make him look bad. So they put out the challenge, and here comes the answer. This challenge is an attempt to prove Jesus wrong. 
And folks, just an FYI, challenging Jesus is generally not a good idea. It's not going to work out well for you, okay? We're going to finish with Matthew 15, uh, go to verses 3 through 9. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And that scripture he's quoting where it says, he who speaks evil of father or mother should be put to death. That seemed a little harsh. That's being disrespectful to the point of abuse, where you're actually abusing your parents. Yeah, and, and, and there's more in this scripture, because what was, what was happening is the Pharisees were teaching individuals that, hey, you can put your money in the treasury here for us to use instead of using it to take care of your parents. Because that way, your money is being used for God, and there's, you can use this legal loophole, essentially. And, and Jesus is saying, you hypocrites, you're breaking the law. So you're asking me about why my followers don't wash their hands, and you're breaking the law by disrespecting your parents, the parents of, of people that follow your direction? Shame on you. So this challenge, like I said, it doesn't go well when you challenge Jesus. The bottom line of this answer don't be hypocritical as you pick on perceived flaws of others. So, Julie, what's the reason the challenge actually failed here? Well, these Pharisees aren't about humbly serving God. They're, they serve themselves. And their issues here is lip service. It's all just for show. Their hearts were disconnected from their actions. They promoted vain worship. Look at me, how holy and great I am which makes me better than you. <laughs> they invalidated the word of God because they weren't teaching what and how they were supposed to. And so Jesus answers the challenge. So you want to start challenging Jesus, beware. He's going to come back to you with scripture. And it doesn't end there. The result of this is as follows. The religious leaders now that Jesus gave them a very hard and truthful answer, they're offended. And what, is ha what happens? Jesus continues to call it as he sees it. So, Jonathan, let's finish up Matthew 15. Uh, let's go to verses 10 through 14. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind guide gives a blind man, uh, if a blind man, um, so let's try that again. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Yeah, this is like the, the classic no-win situation. And, and Jesus is being very, very plain and straightforward about pointing out when somebody challenges him in an in inappropriate way, this is what happens. They get put in their place because Jesus is about the will and word of God. He's telling his disciples in this answer 
that they are blind guides. So he's telling them things are going to change. There's going to be something that's going to be happening coming down the road. The very next recorded event pre-shadows this change because we know the, that Israel ends up being rejected because they reject Jesus. So we're going to combine, to, to get into our next story, we're going to combine the gospel accounts of Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28, and Mark 7, verses 24 to 30, into one condensed reading so we can pull all of the best details from both accounts. So we're going to read them together. We're not going to tell you what verses we're reading because it'll get complicated, but we'll all be very clearly delineated for you in Secret Rewind. So you go there for the full details on this. So, Jonathan, let's get started with this account. Let's go to Matthew 15, 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know about it, and yet he could not escape notice. Okay, so, Julie, what, what's Jesus doing going into Gentile territory here? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. We think he's likely seeking solitude with his disciples. And this is the third time Jesus is recorded as withdrawing from Galilee in the book of Mark. He isn't here to heal, but his fame has reached beyond the borders of Galilee. But he's here for a little relaxation, a little rest. Okay. So he's getting away from the stress of all of the things that he's always constantly being called upon to do. So can you give us some background on Tyre and Sidon? These are cities that are in present-day Lebanon, and we're going to add a map in the CQ Rewind show notes for this week. They're port cities on the Mediterranean Sea. They're north of Israel, known for trade, wealth, and materialistic culture. And there's been a lot of trouble between the Jews and the Canaanites of this region, both militarily and morally, because they serve as a constant dangerous and idolatrous influence for the Jews. This, uh, the hometown, by the way, of the infamous Jezebel was Sidon, according to 1 Kings 16, 31 and 32. All right, so we've got some background on Tyre and Sidon. We've got a sense of Jesus withdrawing there. We, we haven't yet met this Syrophoenician woman that we began talking about, and we're going to meet her very, very soon, but Syrophoenician is a strange word. It's a very long word. What does Syrophoenician mean, and who were the Phoenicians? So Tyre and Sidon were what was called the Phoenician states. They were part of an area called the Phoenician states. Phoenicia was part of the Roman province of Syria. So Syro, Phoenician, would distinguish this woman that we're going to talk about from those Phoenicians who lived in Africa who were called the Carthaginians. So Phoenicians were this ancient Semitic people related to biblical Canaanites. And in fact, different English Bible translations will use the Canaanite term interchangeably with the ancient Greek term Phoenician. Okay. And for, for an example of this, um, in Isaiah 23, 11, the New American Standard Bible says, it talks about the Canaanites. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish the strongholds. And in the New International Version, it says it's concerning Phoenicia. And other translations use the word the merchant one, which is because these people were known by trade. And here's a fun fact. Uh, The best known legacy of the Phoenicians, you know very well, they created the world's oldest verified alphabet and they transmitted it across the Mediterranean world. So as the saying goes, remember how easy it was to learn your ABCs? Thank the Phoenicians. Well, that's something I didn't know. You thank the Phoenicians because they gave us the alphabet. They also gave, uh, Tyre and Sidon gave Jesus a place to go. So 
we're putting the story in order. We're going to get into this Syrophoenician woman coming up very, very, very quickly here. The, the point is, there is a lot of context to understand. Jesus is getting away from all of the stress and strain of his regular, everyday situation. But remember the event before. It's obvious that challenging Jesus on matters of God's law is a pretty futile endeavor. So we better think before we challenge. Now that we have some context, how did this Syrophoenician woman actually challenge Jesus? The details preceding the encounter we're about to examine are important and bear repeating. Jesus was looking for some solitude. He was retreating to Gentile territory and went into a house as quietly as he could. The problem? When you're Jesus, people want to be near you. They seek you out. They find you. So here is the foundation for the challenge. Remember our title, our question, who successfully challenged Jesus? And we're putting the word challenge kind of in quotations here. But here's the foundation for the challenge. Uh, Jonathan, let's go back to Matthew 15 and Mark 7, the compilation of the two to start the story. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician descent. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. And she repeatedly asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So this is dramatic. This is crucial. This is an emergency that we see unfolding from this Syrophoenician woman. And as we look at the way she approaches Jesus, we want to we really, really, really dig in and understand what's happening here. There are three crucial elements to this woman's approach, to this woman's challenge to Jesus. Remember, she's a Gentile, all right? That, that has a lot of bearing on this, this event. So these three crucial elements. The first one is she had a great need. Yes, her daughter is in severe distress. So there's this need the daughter, you got to take care of it. We all, If you're a parent, you know what that feels like. Second, on top of a great need, she had great understanding. She recognizes that he's the Messiah because if you notice, she called him Lord, son of David, and many Jews called Jesus son of David. This was an obvious reference to his Messiahship. We see that in Luke 1.32, for example. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So it's very obvious that by using those words, uh, she has a sense of who Jesus really is. And that's a powerful, powerful statement. So she has this great need, this great understanding. But the third thing she has, the third thing is she has great tenacity. She was determined to be heard, and she was determined to receive help. The need is there. The understanding is there. She knows this is an opportunity. And so with great tenacity, she goes because she, she doesn't know what else to do. So you've got this incredible emergency coming from this Syrophoenician woman. How would Jesus answer such a, a, a deep, deep problem? Well, let's go back to our accounts in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. But he did not answer her with even a word. And his disciples came up and urged him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. Well, Rick and Julie, great. <laughs> Everyone knows where Jesus is. The whole neighborhood is aware of it now. Thanks yeah. a lot, lady. <laughs> <laughs> well, and people get uncomfortable with this account because 
Jesus doesn't answer her or even seem interested. Was he being rude? Well, I, it's it's not a matter of being rude. First of all, there there's there's different aspects, different pieces to this this puzzle here. If you notice, it's the disciples that come to Jesus and say to him, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. So likely, now it's hard to tell, but likely Jesus is in another part of the house perhaps, and she's at the door and they're like trying to deal with this and she's just seems to be out of control. And so they come to Jesus and say, this woman is, is just, just get, get rid of her. She's yelling at us. She keeps yelling at us. So was he being rude? No. And I'm going to say that unequivocally. Why? We're going to see why. We're going to see how this whole thing begins to unfold. There is a great need. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't going to do something. But Jesus, as you know, always does things in his own time and in his own way because he's following the dictates of God's Spirit within him. And God's Spirit would provoke him to do and say things. And he's told us that many times. I do what my Father tells me to do. I say what my Father tells me to say. So no, he's not being rude. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's not being rude. So we need to put this in perspective. Let's talk about the shouting, though. Let's, let's, let's lay this out in a bigger way. The word for shouting that's used here is used many times in the New Testament. And it's a very dramatic word. Jonathan, we want two scriptures here. Let's go to Matthew eight twenty nine. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? So this is demons crying out. And then the other scripture is Matthew 9, 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou Son of David, have mercy on us. Well, Rick, in all these cases, there's this great intensity happening here. And, and the intensity happens for a lot of different reasons. This word has a, a broad perspective. In the first verse that you read there, Jonathan, with the demons, there's a panic. They're like, Jesus is going to ruin what we're doing. You know, are you come to, to judge us before the time? There's a panic in, 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 that, in that crying out. In that second verse you read, you have these two blind men following after Jesus, and there's a desperation there. There's this desperation, please, we have no other, other hope. So the shouting is not just being a little aggravated or uh, ticked off or raising your voice. This is a deep, like you said, a deep desperation. There's a lot of emotion involved in this. So when it says she's shouting, she is pouring her heart out with her need, pouring her heart out. Jesus finally does answer. So what does he say? Well, let's look at Matthew, back to Matthew chapter 15 and Mark 7, the compiled compilation of both of those uh, Gospels. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. So Jesus' answer is not necessarily what you might expect. His answer is an important truth. He says to her very plainly, he was sent to Israel as their Messiah. That's the truth. Her response, we're going to talk about her response in a moment, but let's focus on the, 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 the answer in terms of the truth that he spoke. And once he said those words, it reveals the fourth great crucial element that this woman had in this, in this coming before Jesus, this Gentile woman. And this fourth element is great humility. Julie, what, why do we say that? Yeah, because she bowed in reverence before him and again pleaded. She saw him as her only possible source of help. 
So what we have, and it's interesting, we, we did a, a podcast, I don't know, some, some time ago on, on worship. Remember, we were talking about worship and what it means. And the word for worship actually has the sense of, of bowing down below before someone else in, in, in great reverence. It's like, and, and one of the ways it's described is a fawn, a, a baby deer. And you know, when, a, when you see a fawn, it's always walking around with his head really low because it doesn't have the strength to hold it up. And that's the picture of this reverence. And that's the word that's used where it says she bowed. So she had great humility. And it's interesting. She was yelling before in great intensity. Jesus comes, gives her an answer, and she's not yelling. She bows immediately and just says, Lord, help me. So you can see there's this desperation and this deep, true, legitimate humility. She didn't argue. She just bowed in reverence. And Jesus would again answer. As we look at his response, let us consider that Jesus could read the heart and often used this ability of reading the heart to draw out a person's character. Keep that in mind as we go to what Jesus' answer is, because again, this is not necessarily expected. Jonathan, back to Matthew 15 and Mark 7. Yet he answered and said, Let the children be satisfied first. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So at first glance, this may seem kind of harsh, but is it? Yeah, well, it certainly comes across as harsh to a lot of people, especially when viewed with the lens of today's society. So mm, neither of you is going to like what I have to say, but Rick, you especially are going to need to buckle your seatbelt. So <laughs> I'm sorry. I found an internet blog comment on this exchange that I want to read. And here's, here's what it says. Jesus changed his mind. His bigoted views were challenged and he realized he needed to let go of his inherited cultural biases. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So you're saying that this, this blog is saying that Jesus had inherited cultural biases and he, because he was so bigoted, he yeah. needed to change his mind. Okay, just hold, hold on. All right. <laughs> let, me, let me continue. Uh, all right, okay. Uh, Jesus uttered an ethnic slur to dismiss a desperate woman with a seriously sick child. Jesus holds all the power in this exchange. The woman doesn't approach with arrogance or a sense of entitlement associated with wealth or privilege. Rather, she comes to him in the most human way possible, desperate, pleading for her daughter. And he responds by dehumanizing her with ethnic prejudice, if not bigotry. In our modern terms, we know that power plus prejudice equals racism. <sighs> Hold on. Okay. I'm going to continue. Yeah. <laughs> the, the blog says, rather than being part of the solution to ethnic prejudice, Jesus seems to be very much a part of the problem. When confronted with the Gentile pagan, he explains that his message and ministry are for Israelites only. A comment of ethnic exclusion and prejudice that calls to mind a similar refrain from a more modern time, whites only, that reverberated through the South not too long ago. Are you almost done? It's uh, almost. Okay. This, I think, is the great lesson, this, the blog continues, of the Syrophoenician woman. It teaches us the dynamics of power and prejudice, of how even the best of humanity can get caught up in systems of oppression in a culture of supremacy. Like many of us today, Jesus would have been reared into a prejudiced worldview. So don't tell me you aren't prejudiced or don't exercise your position of power through the lens of your prejudice. Even Jesus did that. Now I'm done. <laughs> 
Well, my observation from, from hearing that from Julie is this blog sounds like it comes from an atheistic perspective. Yeah, but the, uh, the context of the article is Christian. So these are Christians discussing this. Okay, can I take a turn now? Yes, please. Yeah. Fix it. Fo <laughs> folks, listen. Okay, you heard it. Jesus utters an ethnic, ethnic slur. I can't even say the words. To stoop this low, if you are coming from a Christian perspective, to look at Jesus with these kinds of eyes tells me that you have no sense of who Jesus was and is. You have no sense of the wisdom, of the character, of the grace, of the love, and of the sacrifice. He came to die for that woman. Let's not forget that. This idea that he comes across with the supremacy, well, I only came to serve Israel, so back off, woman, is disgusting to me. I'm sorry. Look, this is written out of, I believe, scriptural ignorance. It's just not understanding at all. I don't know. I can't decide if I'm more angry at the blatant misrepresentation of our perfect, perfect Lord, mind you, our perfect Lord Jesus, or more sad that people actually believe such a mess, such untruth. I don't know which is worse. The point here is that this individual is writing from the perspective of a 21st century little tiny box of perspective, mm -hmm. and that's all they're seeing. What they're not seeing is the massive collection of history and, and understanding and language and differences and culture differences. No wonder we have so much trouble now. We can't see outside of this little tiny box, and this is evidence. This is wrong. It is inappropriate, and it is, again, written from a basis of scriptural ignorance. So let me calm down for a moment. And maybe we should take a break <laughs> and so that I can catch a breath. And then let's describe and, and explain this in a logical sequence. Okay. So now we need to be clearly focused as it is so easily, easy to painfully and dramatically miss the point, miss the point of Jesus' words. What did Jesus mean? Was he purposefully condescending or were his words meant to encourage? Hmm, there you go. There always comes a point in every biblical discussion where we need to pause and consider if we're talking about scriptures in their precise biblical context, or if we're using scriptures to feed our own perspective. Accepting the truth regarding our perspective can help us perceive the truth of the Bible. And clearly, that is where the problem lies with that particular blog and that particular individual's interpretation of what was happening. They have a perspective. It's seated in 21st century thinking and, and ideology, and it has nothing, nothing at all to do with the reality of Jesus' time. Nothing. Why? Let's get to it, okay? Let's get down to it. Julie, go ahead. Let's, let, okay. let's, let's put this in perspective. Okay, but just to, just to bring this up, I mean, he did call her a dog, and to call someone a dog meant to give them a very pointed and harsh label. In the ancient Jewish culture, dogs were considered unclean animals, so they roamed wild on the streets, they are undesirable scavengers, they were dangerous, and they often carried diseases. That doesn't sound like a good label to give someone. All right, hold that thought. Okay. Because it's going to be challenged in a moment. And I know it says, you know, you feed the dogs and all this stuff. But also, let me, let, me, let me accentuate what you just said. 
because we have to look at the scriptures in the context of how they're written and what they mean. And look, this language is used in scripture. So you can't hide from the language being used in Scripture. So what you need to do is understand why it's used in Scripture. To call someone a dog in Scripture was to warn of and acknowledge the brazen, unclean, and dangerous characteristics that were shown in a wild dog. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul calls false teachers dogs. Jonathan, let's look at that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. I'm actually good, seeming like we're going to make the argument even worse, but hang on, stay with us. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. So Jonathan, what about this word for dogs in the Philippians scripture? Well, Rick, the word means a dog, and in the uh, Greek English lexicon, it also means a dog, and metaphorically, a man of impure mind an impudent man. Um, impudent is a word that we don't use very often. It's brazen or disrespectful. Also, insolent might be a good synonym for it. So the Greek, now folks, stay with me here very, very closely, because the accusation is that Jesus used racial slurs. Go ahead, Julie. Yeah, is he calling her a dog? Is he labeling her as brazen, dangerous, and unclean? Well, I'm not getting there yet. Let me let me oh. deal with this part first. We'll get okay. to we'll get to her in a moment. But the answer ahead of time is no, because I can't resist. I can't just let it sit. No, he didn't. But let's get to this first. The idea of using dog the way the apostle Paul did, and we're actually in in Secure Rewind in the bonus material. We go through all the uses of dog in the New Testament to, to make the point. You have to examine these things to figure out culture. The lexicon said it's a metaphor for a man of impure or brazen or disrespectful mind. So it's describing something to be aware of in terms of, of, of somebody's characteristics. It's not making them to be an animal. It's saying that's what the characters represent. And that's the way language worked. It wasn't a racial slur. Like we're warning against someone who is like that. Right, right. And incidentally, dogs could be, in, in, well, I won't, go, I won't go down that road right now because not going to be time. The problem here is that we look at that word and we apply it in 21st century thinking. We apply it because we're trapped in the tiny box of this perspective. And we're not allowing ourselves to see outside of this minor tiny perspective that says we see everything as a racial slur what they were talking about is stay away from people who are nasty stay away from people who are misguiding you who are not teaching you the gospel who are are brazen in their in their approach to taking the gospel from you don't go down those roads those are good warnings now in the 21st century you might not like the way they described it but that's what they meant they weren't demeaning the humanity of another individual. They were pointing out the, the dangerous and evil characteristics of those false teachers, those false prophets. That's what it meant. Make no mistake. So now you can ask me the question, Julie. Go ahead. Okay. So, so was <laughs> Jesus calling the Syrophoenician woman a dog? She looked like she was dangerous and diseased. No, not at all, not even remotely close. And you say, okay, Rick, how are you going to... How do you know? <laughs> because we looked up the word. That's how we know. Folks, it's a different word. Now, 
stay with us on this. This is important. Jonathan, what is this word when it says, when Jesus says, uh, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? What does that word for dog actually mean? It means a puppy. And in the Thayer's Greek English lexicon, a little dog. So this word has the thought of a cared for family pet rather than a harsh term for a wild dog. Jesus used the metaphor of children and pets living in the same household. Both are cared for, but the children are the priority of the parents. This was a metaphor this woman could would have understood far more clearly than his own disciples. So let's go back over this and let's put this in perspective because when you're reading that blog, Julie, you, you did, you, you succeeded, and I know you wanted to do this. You made my blood boil. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm looking at that saying, no, 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 you just, you're not getting it. You're so far off. Here's what's happening. Understand, culturally, back in Jesus' time, back then, dogs were unclean to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish people. Now, to a Syrophoenician person, dogs would not have been unclean. They were pets. They were part of their normal, everyday culture. In Jewish culture, you didn't have pet dogs because you didn't want unclean animals in your house. Thus, you have the dog, the grown dog, always in Jewish culture being referred to as a wild dog, one who's out there there that's out of control. So you have to understand that's when, when the apostle says, the beware of the dogs, false prophets, false teachers, he's saying those that are out of control. That's what he's talking about. Here, Jesus is not talking to a Jewish audience. He's talking to a Gentile woman. Oh, so he flipped it into something that she would understand exactly. her daily life. And he uses the picture of a domesticated animal. How do we know? Because it says in the scripture, let the children be satisfied first. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Children, dog, to the puppy. What does the puppy do when you're eating? If We have two dogs. And when, when you eat dinner, you know what happens? They come and sit right underneath you. Why do they do that? Especially when the grandchildren are over. Boy, they think it's a party. <laughs> oh, it's a treat. <laughs> because the food falls from the table. Jesus is painting that picture in a language and in a way that she can understand in her own culture. He is not being biased and he's not being racist. He's being compassionate by explaining to her something really important. Now, we have to further develop this because we're still in the middle of the story. Go ahead. Well, is this word for puppy used anywhere else? No. This is it. This is the only so, time. So it's a, it's a word designed just, just for this story. Right, right. So it's the Greek word that appears in the Bible just in this story because okay. it appears in a Gentile's context and because the puppy is cared for. So now, look, you can be saying, well, Rick, so you're, 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 you're saying that she's, she's only a dog in the house of people. Listen to the way Jesus describes this. Let's keep going with the perspective. Jonathan, let's repeat Matthew 15 and Mark 7, the verses you just read uh, in, at the end of the last segment. Yet he answered and said, let the children be satisfied first. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, back then, they didn't have puppy child, did they? (laughs) Well, well, what the people ate, the puppies ate. Right, right. Sure. And if you notice, that Mark account says, let the children be satisfied first. So this implies that there's going to be a second or a next. They were first, but not exclusive. So I think this would have given her hope and an opening to keep this conversation going. Absolutely. And it was a big opening because you have to understand 
who the, the, the participants are in the conversation. See, folks, this is why so many times people misrepresent and misunderstand Scripture, because they don't take the time to get down underneath the surface. Who's talking? Who are they talking to? What is the context of each? What is their life experience? Do they have the Jewish law with them, or are they not? What kind of situations are they dealing with? What's the, what's the, 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 the level of, of intensity? All of these things are important and what we see here, what we see unfolding right before our eyes, is a compassionate Jesus, a greatly compassionate Jesus, and a very understanding Gentile woman. So Jesus is teaching her that, her, that the children, the Jewish nation, must first be fed, just like you said, Julie, while she and her daughter, Gentiles, would be fed later. But they would be fed later. See, the message of Jesus was to primarily go to the Jewish nation first during his, in, his earthly ministry. We know that because it says in many scriptures. Let's just take one as an example, Matthew 10, verses 5 to 6. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go on to the road to the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus' followers were bound by the limitation of only going to fellow Jews. People can say, well, that must be racist. No, they were God's chosen people. You could become a Jew if you wanted to become a Jew. You could be a proselyte. So don't tell me it was cutting other people off. Others didn't want to because the Jewish life was too restricted for them. They, didn't, they looked down upon the Jews and the Jewish faith. You have to understand that. So this was not this, this high and mighty thing. It was these are God's chosen people, and salvation would come to them first. He knew, Jesus knew the Gentiles would eventually be called to follow him. He knew that. He knew the prophecies. And he stepped over this exclusive line several times in his ministry to illustrate this. And this, this experience with this Syrophoenician woman is one of those times. Now, let's just fast forward a little bit, and then we'll get back to the story. After Jesus' earthly ministry, once he has been raised spiritual— he now instructs his, his, his followers, but his instructions are broader. Listen to the instruction now. He's been raised. They're going to have the Holy Spirit. And here's what he tells them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before he rises up to heaven. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. So he's telling his followers that you will receive the Spirit, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea. Notice the order. Jerusalem first, Judea, Israel second, Samaria now expanding, third, the farthest, remotest parts of the earth, fourth. So you see that he's telling them the gospel is going to expand. So when we go back to the story, we can see how this all begins to put, be, get put in order. He's telling her something much bigger than we would anticipate. We just have to look. So Jesus, by even talking to her and explaining the way this gospel was unfolding, was showing her kindness, I think, and respect. He was interested in her. And in fact, he's actually engaging her in a private one-on-one -on -one conversation. He's not only engaging her, he's telling her some deep biblical truths, and he is drawing her out at the same time. So when we put this in perspective, the whole thing, the whole attitude changes when you realize what Jesus is really saying. So let's go back to the accounts of Matthew and Mark. Matthew 15 and Mark 7. Jonathan, go ahead. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, 
but even the dogs or puppies under the table feed on the children's crumbs. Uh, see, I like her. She's quick and she's clever and she finds a place for her and her daughter in the allegory that Jesus is telling. She does. She does. Jesus gave her that opening and she took it. Right. And that's the important thing. This is where you see the beauty and the caring of the character of Jesus. There's no racism. There's no bigotry. There's a deep compassion and a drawing out and a teaching and a helping her to rise up to a level she would have never even imagined. That's what's happening. And what else is happening? You talked about, Julie, you talked about her and and her, her quickness. But here's the other, the fifth crucial element of this woman's quote unquote challenge to Jesus. And that is she had great and respectful attentiveness. And what strikes me is she's not insulted. She immediately understood what Jesus said and respectfully responded with this desire for mere crumbs. She isn't trying to play the role of the children in Jesus's example. She would not overstep those boundaries that Jesus set. She's simply asking for mercy within those boundaries. So, and this is why this conversation is such a blessed conversation. It is not this despicable expose on some racism not even remotely close. That, that just doesn't even belong in, in, the same, in, in the same discussion. This is a conversation where Jesus is helping her understand things need to be in order, and he gives her that little opening. And you're right, she wasn't insulted. She was motivated. Jesus had shown her the way, and she was taking the way. She was walking where Jesus would have her to walk. This becomes an inspiring conversation, and it gets even better. Jesus had drawn her out. Her humble character was now plainly observable in the midst of her crisis. Everything is on the table. How would Jesus respond, and what can we learn as a result? Only Jesus, only Jesus could have taken a situation with so many seemingly wrong elements and bring it to blessing. He's in a foreign country, confronted by an hysterical Gentile mother about a crisis situation with her daughter who's not even there. Jesus calmly creates perspective so he can act. Folks, that's what he did in that conversation. He calmly created perspective. He did everything according to the will of God. There was no disrespect here. There was teaching. There was elevating. And this woman was in a position because she had humility and she had a sense of who Jesus was. And she knew that he could do it. He used those qualities in her to draw her out so he could bless her. Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7. Jonathan, let's go back to the story. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter, and her daughter was healed at once. And after going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Wow. Notice what happened. She isn't like, well, Jesus, come home with me so that we can make sure that it worked. No, she had the faith that it was done. So she simply went home knowing her daughter was healed. So as we look at this account and Jesus' masterful handling of the experience, we suddenly realize that this Syrophoenician woman did not challenge Jesus. He was actually challenging her. 
See, Jesus knew her heart. He could see. He could see the intensity. He could see what she was made of. And he knew that she needed godly perspective before she could appropriately receive mercy. I want to repeat that. She needed to understand godly perspective before she was in in line to receive mercy. Remember, the gospel went to the Jews first when Jesus walked to the earth. They, by definition, because they were God's chosen people who were supposed to be following God's law, were already in line for God's mercy through Jesus. When Jesus healed those individuals or helped those individuals who were not Jews, every one of them had to display that deep kind of faith so he could bless them. He had to see her faith come up and come out so he could give her the blessing. Once she demonstrated that godly perspective, once she answered Jesus' challenge, she was blessed. She was blessed in it, not just in, in, in the miracle of, of her daughter being healed, but her daughter was healed when Jesus didn't even see the daughter. Talk about a miracle. That is a miracle of massive proportions. Long massive. distance healing. Yes. And the Syrophoenician woman's challenge, I'll put that in air quotes, to Jesus was really finding her appropriate place. And it was done in a desperate circumstance uh, with knowledge, tenacity, humility, and attentiveness. I like her. <laughs> yeah, well, we can tell. <laughs> and, 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 the, and this is such a beautiful pattern to receive blessing if we embrace how she handled it. So that's what we need to look at now, is we need to look at that pattern and say, okay, how do we plead with Jesus? Do we plead with Jesus in the same way? See, this mm-hmm. is the pattern of blessing that we, that we can receive. We can do what this Gentile woman did. We should do what this Gentile woman did. So she becomes this great example because she, could, she connected with the Lord Jesus. There was no at odds. He always understood who she was, and he drew her to a point where she was able to receive the blessing. And so he loved her. He did, obviously. Yeah. He, he loved her enough to heal her daughter who was not even in the same location. Right. And again, she was a Gentile woman. Jesus went first to the Jews. So you have this great sense of great events unfolding right before us here. So let's go through those five steps, but let's reframe them for ourselves. So Julie, let's get started. What's the first one? Uh, That would be great need. Her daughter, remember, was in severe distress. So what about us in our most distressing times? Uh, Let's read Matthew 11, 28, and 29. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So great need. She brought her great need before Jesus and with great intensity. And that's what we should do. When we have great need, we should bring it before our Lord with great intensity because he said to us, come to me and I can give you rest. And we talked about the scripture in great depth in one of our podcasts relatively recently. The idea though is take our great need and bring it before the Lord. Don't forget to do that. That's what she did. What's the second thing she did, Julie? A great understanding. She recognized he was the Messiah by calling him Lord, son of David. So what about us? How do we fortify ourselves during times of peace? Second Timothy 2.15 is a good scripture for this. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. 
our great understanding as Christians really needs to come through our study of God's Word. We need to understand what it is, why it is, how it is, so we can apply it appropriately. And this particular account is a great example, because you can see how dramatically misrepresented it can be. But when you dig into the Scriptures, and you see the context, and you see the words, and you see the understanding, and you see the culture, what you see is great blessing coming from Jesus from start to finish. And she was learning what the plan of God was for the future, and that's something that we as Christians are, have insight to with the Bible if we study it correctly. So we bring our great need before the Lord, and then we fortify it with this continued development of this great understanding. She acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. Our acknowledgement of him as Messiah actually gives us forgiveness for sins. So let's just put it all in perspective. Our great need, our great understanding should follow the Syrophoenician woman's example. Julie, what's the third thing she had? A great tenacity. She was determined to be heard and she was determined to receive help. What about us? Do we have that same determination to be blessed? Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul himself, having done the things that he did in his, in his work, he wrote Philippians late in his life, and he says, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. In other words, I still have work to do, and I press forward. I will not stop. I will not slow down. I will not be distracted. I will keep going forward. And that's the way we need to approach our Father and our Lord Jesus when we have problems, when we have issues. We have the need. We study. We have the understanding, the, the, the forgiveness. And then we have to have the tenacity to say, I am going to do your will, whatever it is. And sometimes— Oftentimes, the answer to our prayer, to our issue, may be no. That doesn't mean you stop. It means you work even harder, because that's the will of God. That's the providence of God on your behalf for your growth, for your development. When God says no, he is not being bigoted toward you. God says no to help you mature. That's why Jesus challenged the Syrophoenician woman to help her grow to a place of understanding. And that tenacity is what got her there. What's the next thing she displayed, Julie? Number four? Great humility. She bowed in reverence before him and again pleaded. So what about us? Do we hold our anxiety while we try to solve our problems by ourselves? 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The humility that she is, is described as having is, is remarkable, and it's, it's, it's something that we should look at and imitate. We should imitate the humility of this Gentile woman. She bows before him and says, Lord, please help me. That's what she says, Lord, please help me. That's it. There was this humility understanding that he did, in fact, have the power, and he could, in fact, bless her. Our anxiety can follow us around. We have to learn as best as we're able, and look, this can be hard, and this can be a, a lifelong trial, as best as we're able to cast our anxieties upon the Lord so that he can care for us. He can't, we, we get in his way caring. 
when we don't cast our anxieties upon him. She had that great humility, and it shows us how we also can have that great humility in our experiences. The fifth thing that she displayed, Julie, is what? A great and respective attentiveness. She immediately understood what Jesus said and respectedly responded by asking for just a crumb. She wasn't asking him to change how he was implementing the plan of God, meaning to the Jew first. She placed herself within the boundaries that Jesus set and asked for mercy. And I just wanted to mention she would have been one of the least important people to implore Jesus. She's a foreigner, a Greek Gentile, poor, and a woman. So four strikes. <laughs> but she was brave and persistent. And faithful. She and was, faithful. She was faithful in, in, in where she could be faithful. It was a wonderful thing. So, Jonathan, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 to 6 for us. What about us? Suffering hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus— no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that they may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive the share of the crops. So great and respectful attentiveness. She heard what Jesus said as the guidelines, and she immediately found her place within those guidelines. We need to understand our guidelines. Suffering hardship with me. The Apostle Paul is speaking to Timothy. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. Work with me. Work side by side. Be a soldier with me. This is hard. We will not be engaged in other things. We will be about the work of our Father's business. We will have great and respectful attentiveness so the blessing can come to us. You see, it comes to us when we put ourselves in a position to be able to receive it. That's really what the Syrophoenician woman is teaching us. So as we begin to, to, to wrap this up, think back to the Pharisees that we referred to at the very beginning of this conversation. They set out to proudly challenge and defeat Jesus. We can now, as we look back over this, that event and, and the event of the Syrophoenician woman, we can now see why this event with this particular woman was re the next recorded event in Jesus' life. It displays the contrast between the social position that the Pharisees were displaying and the personal need that the Syrophoenician woman had. What else does it show us? It lays bare the sin of usurping power against the humility of understanding its boundaries. It accentuates the evil of tempting, and that's what the Pharisees were doing, against the positive power of tenacity. It shows us the stark difference between walking as one who feigns having authority and worshiping the one who actually has it. I like that one. And it reveals the difference between arrogance and attentiveness. And one more juxtaposition that struck me is the hypocritical and the scheming words of the Pharisees. But this woman, on the other hand, was coming out of her mouth. She expressed a simple, powerful faith. But remember, when Jesus interacted with the Gentiles, faith had to be established so the blessing could be shown. And, and so... When we look back on this event, and we look back on the story, and we look at, uh, upon the Syrophoenician woman's uh, distress and anxiety and, and yelling for attention because she was so desperate, what we're seeing is this was, this was an immature representation of faith. 
The faith was there. It needed to be drawn up. It needed to be drawn up. It needed to be put into position. And you're right, Jonathan. She had to show the faith. She went. She was tenacious. And, and, and the disciples like, will you tell her to leave already? She's yelling at us. Jesus comes and calmly converses with her and calmly, step by step, brings her to a point where she understands where she belongs. And in understanding it, she embraces it without a moment's hesitation. So folks, when we look at this account, when we look at this this story of healing, of grace, of love, and of mercy, what do we see? We see a desperate woman who knew Jesus could take care of her, could bless her. And again, she's not asking for herself. She's asking for her daughter. And we see Jesus taking this woman and saying, yes, I can, but not quite yet. You need to understand a few things. You need to put yourself in position where your faith is very obvious to you, where you obviously understand where you fit, and then the blessing could come. That is the Lord Jesus doing what he does and doing what he did. He blessed her, and that is a picture of him blessing the world of mankind in the kingdom when all will have that healing. They will have the faith, and Jesus will be able to bless them as well. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts, please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, is Christianity being canceled? Hmm. Is Christianity being canceled? Think about that. We'll talk to you next week.